This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, you're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Kevin Young, poetry editor of the New Yorker magazine. On this program, we invite poets to choose a poem from the New Yorker archive to read and discuss. Then they read a poem of their own that's appeared in the magazine. My guest today is Toy Derricotte, the poet, memoirist, and co-founder with Cornelius Eady of the literary organization Cave Canem. Toy's honors include the Penn Volcker Award for Poetry and the Patterson Poetry Prize for Sustained Literary Achievement. In 2020, she received the Poetry Society of America's Frost Medal for Distinguished Lifetime Achievement in Poetry. Welcome, Toy. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you, Kevin, for having me. Good to talk. So much to talk about. Um, I want to hear the first poem that you've decided to read, which is We Feel Now, A Largeness Coming On by Tracy K. Smith. What was it that drew you to this poem as you're looking through our archives? Well, I was so lucky because I had planned to spend the whole weekend going through the archives to find something. And I started, and this poem, having been published recently, I came upon very quickly and fell madly in love with it. And I needed to go no further. Well, why don't we hear the poem? Here's Toy Derricotte reading, We Feel Now, A Largeness Coming On by Tracy K. Smith. We feel now a largeness coming on. Being called all manner of things from the dictionary of shame, not English, not words, not heard, but worn, born, carried, never spent. We feel now a largeness coming on, something passing into us. We know not in what source it was begun, but wrapped we watch it rise through our fallen, our slain, our millions dragged, chained, like daylight setting leaves alight, green to gold, to blinding white, like a spirit caught, flame in flesh. I watched a woman try to shake it once from her shoulders and hips, a wild, annihilating fright. 
Other women formed a wall around her, holding back what clamored to rise. God, devil, ancestor, what black bodies carry through your schools, your cities. Do you see how mighty you've made us? All these generations running every day stealing ourselves against it every day coaxing it back into coils and all the while feeding it and all the while loving it that was we feel now a largeness coming on by tracy k smith which was published in the november 23rd 2020 issue of the magazine I love that you picked that poem. Um, that largeness, I think, is so powerful. But it starts with this dictionary of shame, which I think is very important for the poem. And, and I wonder how you thought about that. She, she says, not English, not words, not heard, but worn, born, carried, never spent. How, how did you take that opening? Well, first of all, what an amazing image that she found to summarize whatever this is that we have experienced, anyone whose ancestor went through slavery. I mean, to get that down in three words, a dictionary <laughs> of shame, and then right. to say that, um, you know, it's not words that are usually in a dictionary. All the words have double meanings, worn yes. like you can wear them, worn like worn down, and um, a word like uh, born, you know, not only carried a heavy load, but you have to think of being born into this. Sure. And even spent, which means yeah. both exhausted and then also monetary, you know, yes. uh, the cost uh, that I think she, she captures. Yes. And also I was thinking uh, depleted, but no. We're not depleted, even mm. after all of this. Uh, so she just came up with words that are perfect. Yes. Well, and it's a kind of conjugation almost here. Warren, born, carry, never spent. It almost is, you know, the words are being found. And I, I love that you pay attention uh, and help us pay attention to those double meanings because they feel like they're being enacted. And that's always what I love in a poem is when a poem makes me, you know, I'm going on a journey with the poet, uh, with the language, with, in this case, this dictionary that is wordless, but so, as you put, apt and, and filled with meaning. Yes, yes. And... I think it's an amazing thing that she's convincing hmm. that this voice that's talking about something so big has the authority to say this. She convinces us that she has the authority. And yet, even as this authoritative voice, she's also intimate. Now, mm. how does she do that? How does she... <laughs> how does she at the same time be this authority and yet feel so intimate. That's right. Uh, well said. I, I think some of it is the we, which brings it, even if you're not perhaps by the end of the poem, part of the we, you are part of the we. It's a generous poem, even in its pointedness. And that's something I think a poet like 
Lucille Clifton was able to do. Uh, Miss Lucille, as you know, and we each knew her um, and knew her together. She was able, I think, to to point out a big thing and make it feel really small, uh, make it feel intimate, as you put it. That's a very good point. Intimate, but not personal intimate. Huh. Isn't that interesting how yeah. it can rise to that level where it's speaking of and for a multitude? Sure. But, you know, I think she is talking about now that word largeness. Mm. It's abstract. And yet it's so appropriate. And it's not really abstract in this poem. Mm. You know, and when she wants to make the poem tight with those sounds and the vowels and the, the consonants, you know, that image like daylight setting leaves a light green to gold to blinding white. I mean, she makes it pop. And uh, so I just think of this largeness. You know, I had to think of Amanda Gorman. Hmm. Because after that inauguration, so many people came up to me and said, not did you see Joseph Biden, but did you see Amanda Gorman? Yeah, the inaugural poet. The uh, inaugural uh, poet. And I just thought something people are sensing about this authority. Yeah. Well, I wonder in this poem if it's also she kind of holds back on that till then. Like, I feel like the rhyme catches up to us or we catch up to it. Our slain, our millions dragged, chained. And then that rhyme starts changing the poem. And even the the phrases, uh, the beginning of the poem rolls with this kind of largeness, uh, which is not largesse, <laughs> but, oh, <no>. you know, <laughs> it's playing with that. And, and then it says, like a spirit caught, period, flame in flesh. You know, I watched a woman try to shake it once. And that kind of transformation into this witnessing, I think is really powerful. And it's something that a poem can do well, and do in a matter of uh, moments, you know, I, I, I love that. And I think to your point about sort of inaugurations and big moments, you know, it's amazing how often in those moments, uh, poets reach for we, because we, I think, starts mm. to help us think about what's it mean in, to be in this we. Now, sometimes we can feel exclusive when you feel excluded from the we, but sometimes it can feel generous and, and a bit of a dance uh, between that I and the we, or the, the I that, that's in the blues that's really a we. Uh, and here, I feel like it does both. She has this we that is very personal and uh, feels named. And then suddenly this I comes in uh, who yes. is who is this witness to this attempt that is, in some ways, the poet herself? You know, I watched a woman try to shake it once from her shoulders and hips, a wild, annihilating fright, which of course rhymes with oh. this daylight uh, that she's had us think about. And then other women formed a wall around her, holding back, and then this rising, which she again conjures, conjugates, uh, plays with God, devil, break ancestor. That's beautifully said. And I love how you reminded me about the difference between we and I. I heard it that way, but hadn't quite thought about it that way. But it's almost like when she's saying we, 
she's not even talking for herself. It's like she's not e even in the poem until mm. she says, I, you know, it's like, okay, we, it's all of us, but now here I'm going to say something about myself. These few two or three lines, whatever, I'm going <laughs> to speak as, a, as myself, as an mm. individual. What's an individual? who is in the most collective of moments, I mean, is surrounded yes. by a wall of women, is is also carrying well, I have to uh, think God, of, devil, of, ancestor. Of church, you know. Oh, sure, of course, yeah. And how in church, you know, when someone feels the spirit, you know, the nurses come, the women <laughs> in, in white dresses. In white, they, they sometimes wear a hat or like a veil on yeah, their head. Yeah, absolutely. And they come and, and they take care of you. They keep you safe. Sure. While you're in the spirit, you know? Yes. And uh, think of how many generations that religion gave us this kind mm. of way to what? Have these this largeness move through us in some kind of way? I mean, I hear it when I hear jazz. Yes. I mean, it's almost as if she's taken the worst, worst thing. And like you want to say, I sure am glad I'm black. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm so glad to be. I'm so glad I had an ancestor that was in slavery. I mean, it, it's it's an amazing it's transformation. transformation. Yeah. Yes. Well, and she says every day stealing ourselves against it. Again, there's double yes. uh, play there. But yeah. then everyday coaxing it back into coils, oh, which yes. I think is what a fascinating, amazing oh. line. I mean, the C sounds and the K sounds uh, incredible, but how do you read the coils? And then of course, and, the last I, two lines, I think speak to what you just said, feeding it and loving it, you know, that yes. uh, blackness don't tell nobody is pleasurable <laughs> and enjoyable, um, you know, and, and not simply suffering. I think there's something in that very much, but how do you take the coaxing well, it back into you coils? Know, in that way, we love our suffering in a way. I mean, mm. I don't know what it is. I don't want to, I mean, so many times you wish you didn't have to go through what you go through, but in some way we love each other. It, it's like, uh, you know, at Kavi Khanum, the uh, retreat for African-American poets. When you sit in that circle and you're with 50 other black poets, you are so high. Because you know what you're with, you know that feeling. But when she says coaxing it back into coils, the first thing I think of is hair. Yes. Did Isn't you that too? Amazing? Yeah, I did. And then I was like, oh, there's a kind of almost snake-like imagery. But yeah. no, I just thought of the coil, your one's <laughs> yeah, yeah. hair. And, you know, there's a beautiful coaxing. What a great word. Oh, wonderful with that long vowel sound, you know, yeah. she when she wants to use those long vowels, she yes. really pulls them out. And um, co also coils, I thought of musical instruments, you know, trombones, trumpets, sure. shiny. Uh, <laughs> yes. Well, and, and something about to happen, like a spring, it's coiled about to spring into action or uh, all the while feeding it, all the while loving it. Yes, uh, there's something like really that. resonant about it. Uh, and it's a largeness. And again, you know, to conjure largeness, but also make it small and intimate, 
to think about an it that, you know, she can write about it and, and you know what it is, as you say, but it's, I can't do that. You know, it's hard to, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's hard I to conjure, wondered, man. I wondered what gives her this authority. And I mean, she is, she has been poet laureate and she has been of such service to so many people, I think. And I think maybe this is how she comes upon this voice. Well, and I think, you know, she won the first Cave Canem, well, not the first Cave Canem Prize, but an early Cave Canem Prize. That's um, right. And, you know, she certainly was involved with Cave Canem, which I want to talk about in a moment. Uh, and your inventing of this amazing space that is transformed Cornelius poetry. And I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you, you all, y'all, uh, no. uh, transformed uh, poetry. And and I think just sticking with this poem for one moment, oh, this idea please. of transformation is throughout it. And there's a way in which it enacts what it's saying. It shows us through the flesh. You know, it too is kind of a caught spirit. It uh, is not just authority. It's also kind of wild. It's barely containing itself. And there's something about that question, which I love how you read it. Do you see how mighty you've made us all these generations running? And and there's that you in the poem uh, who, who, who I think is both in the poem and also far outside. Um, and there, there's a kind of uh, quality of that that I think is knowing, but also distancing. That's really What do you bold. think about that you? Say a little more. I mean, I think it's uh, sort of j'accuse, you know, like, like like accusing someone who's not there, uh, you know, a bad uh, a friend, a bad lover, a bad time, a bad everything, you know. Um, and the you is sort of, um, you know, it's society, it's the man, it's also, like I said, it's it's intimate because it also follows what black bodies carry through your schools, your cities. It it has a very specific moment that I think is also conjuring uh, anger and, 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 and disappointment and being a body, which is both, you know, a fact and also sometimes uh, a limit as opposed to the spirit, you know? Uh, so there's this kind of tension, I think, in that you and in that body um, that we all carry. Well, I like to consider that you know, when I was in graduate school, being the only Black poet in my class, when I wrote about Blackness, I had to put it through the shredder and put the language back together again so that my cohorts, who were all white, would understand it. And so for me, a poem like this that has a we, that mm -hmm. is intentional yes using the language for me for us and not having to send it through that shredder and it's not an angry poem as you said but it's telling it like it is yeah it's just telling it like it is this is the way it is it's very special i think that way in the january 21st 2019 issue of the magazine the New Yorker published your poem, I Give In to an Old Desire. And you're going to read that for us momentarily, but is there anything you want to say about the poem first? Anything that might be helpful for listeners to know before they hear it? Well, uh, it's from my um, latest book and one of my newer poems. 
And I think what I liked so much about this is it had a way of sort of forming itself. You know, it sort of came through me, the form. And I noticed at this time that my idea about form was changing. And that's one of the things that happened with this book. This poem was an example of these two-line stanzas that seemed to kind of run into each other in a very conversational way. Excellent. Here's Toy Derricotte reading her poem, I Give In to an Old Desire. I give in to an old desire. I lost so much of the world's beauty as if I were watching every shining gift on its branch with one eye because I was hungry, because I was waiting to eat a self crawling about the world in search of small things. I remember a small thing, my mother's hat, a tea hat or cocktail hat that sat on top of her perfect face. Petals, perhaps peonies flaming out like the pink feathers of some exotic bird. Her mother had been a cook in the South. She grew up in the home of wealthy white people, hesitant toward her own beauty, unable to protect mine. There were things she never talked about. She said silence was a bomb. It sat on top of her head, something of exaltation and wonder exploding from the inside like a woman in orgasm. One artificial flower I have desired to write about for years. That was I Give In to an Old Desire by Toy Derricotte. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. (laughs) Hearing that poem... uh, it's so powerful and you're such a good reader and I've always loved how you read Um, and hearing every word. It has a different feel than the longer lines of Tracy's poem. It has a kind of stepping quality. And I love that moment, for instance, petals, 
perhaps peonies flaming out like, you know, and that exotic bird. You really feel uh, that yearning in the poem. Well, you know, as I was reading it, you know how a lot of times you read your poems and discover something else in your poems that, that right, you didn't right. know? Well, this time when I read it, I realized there are pink birds in it. Yes. And do you know, there are pink birds in a poem that I recently published in The New Yorker. <laughs> and I mean, how often do pink birds show up? <laughs> <laughs> in two poems, you know. So I, I, I always find that. I mean, do you? That, well, I find that that happens. You know, one finds a metaphor that you can't let go of. You know, um, <laughs> I try. That's why we write. You know, uh, what I usually used to tell my students is, you know, just turn it into a series and make it like official. So you know, it's not that I I, I can't not write about pink birds. Is that that's the name of the book, uh, or that's the sequence? Pink birds. You know? <laughs> Um, no, what a beautiful, I love that part of the poem because there's this, all those P sounds, petals, perhaps peonies, pink, and then the K sounds and like and pink and exotic, really beautiful. And you managed to do something that I think isn't easy, but that a, the lyric poem can sometimes do is where you evoke huge histories in this poem. Her mother had been a cook in the South. Uh, she grew up in the home of wealthy white people. And then you say, hasn't toward her own beauty, unable to protect mine. I mean, these are, there's a whole novel in there, but there needn't be a novel because we have this whole poem uh, yeah. that in very few lines is able to tell us generational tales, um, inheritance, silence. Uh, these are things that I think are, are rooted in your work, but I also think show up here in such fresh ways. I, I should be asking you questions, but I'm mostly no, just, no, please. Uh, singing my praises I, for you. I love what you're saying about it because sometimes it's hard for me to talk about my poems. And I don't think I would have said the things you're saying, except I would have said something about she grew up in the home of wealthy white people, hesitant toward her own beauty, unable to protect mine. There were things she never talked about. You know, when I was writing that, there was some voice in me that said, maybe this doesn't belong in this poem. You know, you're talking about the hat. <laughs> and now suddenly you're using one sentence to say that your mother spent 18 years of her life you know, with all the details that go, my mother actually wrote a book about growing up in the home of wealthy white people. Wow. Do you have it? Still? Yes. Yes, I do. I do. I mean, I, I had it published after she died. She spent 15 years writing that book. Wow. And, you know, so many stories about her mother being the cook and how her mother kept control of a lot of things, you know, sure, sure. because she needed to and how she was generous with her own community, you know, mm. taking food and tins to sure, people sure. who were in the community who didn't have food. Sure. And, um, you know, how she kept the lady of the house from <laughs> exerting certain kinds of control. I and, see. you know, when I summarized that in one sentence, I wondered where I was going. 
and I could have, well, I kept on going. <laughs> well, because it's not a hat. I mean, it's not just a hat. It's, a, it's I know, this thing I know. that's, that's uh, uh, nudging the poet, you know, and nudging us. Um, and I guess what I, I am curious about is you're talking about sort of, I think it's almost more important that you say it because right after you say, she said silence was a bomb. And there's a way in yes. which by telling these stories or this one story, <sighs> which is a huge story and a, and a not unfamiliar one from where I come from, but it's also uh, breaking this silence. You know, she said silence and there's literally a line break. She said silence break was a bomb. The tone of that is so fascinating because you don't say anything about that, but then you say it sat. Uh, and I always read that as the silence sat on top of her head, uh, something of exaltation and wonder. And that I think it's so beautiful how you, you I'm going to use that word I used earlier, conjure that. Well, you know, I was thinking that is sort of like Tracy's poem, to, to take the pain and to have the poem transform what is so horrible into something magnificent. I well, think you turn it into pleasure, into female pleasure specifically. Right. right. Did you know you were going to end with that or that, did that oh, come in the writing as no. well? Yeah. Oh, heavens no. I, I think it's not a good idea to know what the ending is. <laughs> uh, impossible anyway, but yes, you're right. <laughs> But I think this is one of the things that poetry does for me personally, it, to make something beautiful, you know, or truthful out of things that haven't been said, maybe, or haven't been made into something that belongs to you, something that you're connected to. And this is very much about Kamekanam, you know, and why it was so important for me to be part of a group of people who are writing poetry. Yeah, tell us about that. Well, it's, we're celebrating 25 years this year, and uh, that's a big thing. But mainly what happened is being uh, like Cornelius Eady, uh, who is my co-founder, you know, we were so often the only Black poets and uh, needing to translate our poems and our experience. And so, you know, we just came up with this idea to have a workshop taught by Black poets, attended by Black poets. And we knew it was gonna be a good idea, but we had no idea how powerful it would be because every person there felt that same lifelong need to have a poet, to speak with another poet, to hear them. And immediately people began to enrich themselves by being in this fertile ground of having 50 other Black poets suddenly appear before you, you know? Sure. And, and, and there was a there was a time when it didn't seem like that there were 50 black poets, you know, I mean, yes, right. we, exactly. we might have known this, but you might have known them all. And suddenly the people came out of the woodwork. And uh, I think that's what's amazing is, you know, there's books, there's workshops, as you said, there's whole movements and other collectives and, and yes. groups that sprung out of it. And uh, I think that's yes. so important. 
untransformational for black poets, but also I think for American poetry. I, I was talking about uh, this recently where, you know, there was this notion back then, it's like, you shouldn't write about identity or uh, where you're from in some way, unless it's a very particular place in, I don't know, Maine or something, um, <laughs> you know, and, and I felt like there was a kind of a mistake there uh, that we're now seeing, you know, no one would say that right now. I, I think people understand better the ways that we were always writing about where we're from and why not get it in the language and, and then the feelings and the truth, um, which Black Poets had always been. And I just finished this big anthology, so I've been thinking about it a lot. I have always been writing out of this place, but to see it all in one place. Yes, Akane exactly. Khan was really powerful. And now, you know, uh, speaking of America noticing, all of these poets are getting the top awards for poetry in the country. Sure. You know, they're, they're on every list, several of these people. So this goes back to Tracy's poem. There is something very powerful and transformational that's happening right now in time. Now, uh, just to tell you quickly, the name Kavekanam came from uh, Cornelius and his wife, Sarah, and myself were on vacation in Capri when we decided to do this together. And after we decided to do it, we went to Pompeii and there on the floor of the House of the Tragic Poet was the black dog with the words, Cave Canum, beware the dog, in the tile in the foyer of the House of the Tragic Poet. Amazing. That seemed pretty... <laughs> timely to say the least <laughs> right right i remember you telling me uh maybe you'll remember this that you were gonna do this i think it might have been at the michael harper conference and it might have been 1996 i oh, you know like wonderful. could that be possible could that be oh, true yes absolutely um, and i remember you know, so many aspects of that moment, uh, you know, now it seems inevitable that, of course, you were going to do it. But, you know, it was such a big, huge leap to create a workshop, not out of nothing, but out of, uh, there were, were precedents, but not exactly right then, you know, and, and people don't always remember that uh, there wasn't a time when people were winning awards and uh, where, oh, where diversity and poetry was appreciated. So, uh, you know, I think it's important to note that. Well, you know, I'll tell you something. The way it happened, we had no money. We did it out of our own pockets. But it's interesting how when something is right, it seems, again, harking back to Tracy's poem, it seems like the universe sort of falls in place because as soon as we decided to do it, I called my friend who was the priest in charge of a monastery on the Hudson. And I said, hey, could we use the monastery next year? You know, it's a castle with yeah. 400 acres. And he said, sure, come on up. And that's the way Kavi Kanem happened. It seemed like every time it might fall apart, there was some angel that just flew right in and picked it up, you know? I guess it was just supposed to happen. Well, I want to end with thinking about the end of your poem. You say at the end, one artificial flower break I have desired 
to write about for years. And I think about that desire to write, you know, which is some of what you're saying about Kavi Kana, but also this feels like a kind of Ars Poetica, a poem about poetry in some way. Um, how do you think about that desire? Is it about desire in the bigger sense? Is it about writing? Is it about memory? Yes to all these things? Well, you know, I think Toy Derricot using the word desire in a poem is quite inflammatory. <laughs> I, I feel it's very close to me, whatever that word means. And of course, since poetry is my great love, it's got to be about poetry. But you know, desire for a woman my age and for a black woman to desire something is a very bold condition, I think. And so I think if that came out of writing this poem, if I was to come to something surprising, it would be desire. Toy, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank uh, you yes. so much, Kevin. I give in to an old desire by Toy Derricott, as well as Tracy K. Smith's We Feel Now a Largeness Coming On, can be found on newyorker.com. Tracy K. Smith's new book, Such Color, is forthcoming this fall. Toy Derricott most recently published I, New and Selected Poems. You may subscribe to this podcast, the Fiction Podcast, the Writer's Voice Podcast, and the Politics and More Podcast by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. You can hear more poetry read by the authors on newyorker.com and the New Yorker app, available from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is The Corner by Christian Scott Atunde Ajua, courtesy of Stretch Music and Ropadope. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses, with help from Hannah Eisenman. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.